Welcome to Coastline. Having a backyard or garden that boasts native plants, feeds the ecosystem, is more able to survive severe weather, and keeps invasive plants out of wild areas. How does an invasive plant in a pot in your own backyard make it into a forest and strangle the life out of a wild ecosystem? Barbara J. Sullivan explains. She's the author of the new book, Climate Change Gardening for the South, which upends traditional gardening ideas and perhaps simplifies your life in the process. We'll also find out why the author took her time accepting some of these ideas herself and how she implemented them slowly, one step at a time. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Join us for this edition of Coastline. WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina. This is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. The planet is warming. We hear about this almost daily through national and international news stories and headlines. China's catastrophic summer shows its climate adaptation plan still have a long way to go, roars Vox. The Washington Post reports that climate change is fueling super hurricanes. And the World Economic Forum recently published an analysis of beaver habitats and why they might be helpful in mitigating the effects of climate change. But many Americans still don't think it's a major issue, and even more Americans say they're not convinced it's caused by human activity. 538 offers polling that shows 36 percent of Democrats and just 5 percent of Republicans rank climate change as a top issue. But wherever you fall on the belief spectrum, one local gardening expert is adapting for impacts in the southeastern United States. In her newest book, Climate Change Gardening for the South, Barbara J. Sullivan explores the impacts of climate change for individual gardeners. She offers ideas for altering private gardens so they survive the changing climate and ecosystem while transforming into oases for birds, pollinators, and other animals. In her new book, she also challenges traditional gardening wisdom. We're going to explore some newer, more sustainable ideas about gardening today, including how we define a successful garden, whether a suburban yard, a strip in an urban setting, containers on a patio, or an open field. It's possible to create a vibrantly healthy garden that is part of a larger climate change solution. Barbara Sullivan, welcome to Coastline. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. It's good to have you back. Now, you write that you've had something of an epiphany in understanding the role that your own personal garden plays in the larger scheme of things. Help us kind of understand what that epiphany is about. Okay. Um, So I have gardened for over 40 years, and I would call myself a traditional gardener. I was brought up on um, British images of British gardens and horticulture magazine and... um, sort of the standard idea of what a successful, beautiful garden should be, and I just happen to love gardening for whatever reason. It seems to be in my nature. And um, in 2019, the University of North Carolina Press called and asked me if I would like to write another book, and one of the suggested topics was climate change gardening. 
And I said, that would be wonderful. I would love to do that. <clears throat> Why me. was that interesting to you? Well, I, I knew quite a bit about gardening, and I had read books on climate change, but I had never really thought of them in conjunction with one another, and I thought that would be such an interesting topic to research. So, <clears throat> excuse me, after having spent all of COVID and more researching, um, I gradually, bit by bit, started to see the garden in a different frame, and when I came to finally write the book, uh, I was a little bit of a different person than I was before I had started the research. That's a big deal. I mean, your first book was a pretty big hit, at, at <laughs> least around here. I mean, UNC Press is calling you to write another book, Garden Perennials for the Coastal South, I Right, think. correct. And so in this book, you you make the understanding of climate change and its impacts on gardens very accessible and non-jargony. So in terms of climate change impacting individual gardens or private gardens, how, how would you describe the impact that it's going to have? Well, um, there's going to be an impact, or there is already starting to be an impact on a number of levels. Uh, basically, the predictions for climate change in this part of the country, this, this is a book for the southeastern United States, um, are that there will be more frequent and more severe uh, storms and floods, droughts, heat waves. Pests are uh, going to increase, unfortunately. Uh, climate change benefits invasive plants, which take over natural areas. <clears throat> and what have I left out? <laughs> uh, diseases, plant diseases. So there's a lot more stressors on our gardens, um, and we've experienced this summer, I thought, just an amazing amount of heat. It yeah. seemed to me hotter than I remember. Now, you in your book, you differentiate among three geological zones in the southeast. You talk about the Piedmont, the mountains, and the coastal plain. And the Cape Fear region is, of course, the coastal plain. And you say that that is a biodiversity hotspot? It is. This is one of the most biodiverse areas in the United States of America. So, which leads me to say that we have an enormous palette to choose from in terms of using native plants, which is something um, I became, I was familiar with native plants and I used native plants, but I became somewhat of a um, born again native plant person, I guess you might <laughs> say. <laughs> I had never been part of the local native plant society. I always planted, as I said, lots of them, but I planted many other plants also from that would be called introduced species or exotic species, meaning they're from somewhere else in the world. Um, but when I finished doing this research, I realized the benefit of native plants to, for so many reasons, uh, for our fellow creatures, of course, which I could elaborate on, but also um, just to develop a healthy garden ecosystem, which will be more resilient to periods of drought and flooding and the other stressors that are going to be coming with climate change. So you're saying native plants are more resilient. They can deal better with some of these increasing stressors like heat and drought and superstorms and that sort of thing. That is in general true. It is There are plants that have very special niche conditions that they need, and they do need 
Um, they're, they're not super robust, but by and large, native plants are the go-to. And in the book, what I've done is provided um, a couple of dozen tables which indicate which native plants are the most drought tolerant, which are flood tolerant, <clears throat> excuse me, which are tolerant of salt spray, et cetera. And that's when you're getting it. Would you call these kind of microclimates or ecosystems? Because some people deal with salt spray in the Cape Fear region and, and some don't, or does every, am I wrong about that? No. Does everybody? Well, you're right. And actually salt spray can come really, really far inland um, in times of hurricanes. It's amazing how far inland it can come. But in general, salt spray would be for people that live right on the coast. But uh, the drought-tolerant plants, I would think pretty much everybody who lives here would want to be choosing some drought-tolerant plants. Flood-tolerant plants would be if you live, um, if your yard is a place that you know to be prone to flooding. Um, our yard, for example, that's not an issue. But some people know that they're always, whenever there's a big storm, there's always going to be flooded areas. Now, you say that gardeners have two kind of overarching goals when it comes to climate change. One is adaptation and one is mitigation. And so we've talked a little bit about adapting in terms of choosing plants that um, will be able to survive some of these increased effects. But how can an individual garden mitigate climate change? Well, Here's how I look at it. We have 91 million people or so in the United States who garden. And so even if you feel like you just have your one little, this is the way I used to look at my yard, that it's just my little patch, my private garden, and it really has not a whole lot to do with anything else. But um, when you start reading about it, you realize that clearly, obviously, scientifically speaking, you're interconnected with um, all the other living parts of our planet, whether you're aware of it or not. And so everything you do, every choice you make, actually has an effect one way or the other on the entire, um, the entire um, ecosystem, I guess you would say, yours and those surrounding you. And therefore, there are many, many different choices you can make that will, in, a, in small ways, mitigate um, and that has to do, again, with helping the native wildlife that we have that need our help. And we've been over this uh, a number of times on Coastline before, but just for those who've never heard this concept, talk a little bit about the impact of native plants versus non-native plants on the ecosystem. Why do we keep talking about plants as they relate to other animals or pollinators or bugs or what? Right. It's my little square patch. It has nothing to do with anybody else. Right. So, for example, um, I think it, the figure is 96% um, of birds need feed their young caterpillars. 96%? Terrestrial birds, not, you know, not, not including waterfowl. We're going to take a break, and we will come back 
in just a moment. You're listening to Coastline expert gardener Barbara Sullivan is with us today, shaking up traditional gardening ideas and helping us craft green spaces that are not only healthy, but part of a climate change solution. After this short break, why you might reconsider raking up dead leaves and other ways to make your teenager happy while you create a garden that's better for the planet. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Barbara J. Sullivan is author of the popular guide Garden Perennials for the Coastal South, and UNC Press has published her newest book, Climate Change Gardening for the Coastal South, in which she lays out why we need to change our perception of what makes a successful green space and how we can be part of the climate change solution. Now, Barbara, just before we went to break, you were explaining to us why native plants are so important to the local ecosystem, the surrounding ecosystem. So birds feed their young, 96% of terrestrial birds, you said, feed their young caterpillars. Right, and then um, moths and butterflies, which lay their eggs, which eggs then become little caterpillars for the birds, um, a huge percentage, something like 90% of those um, moths and butterflies need very specific native plants to lay their eggs on. So there are some insects and pollinators that are called generalists, which means that they can make do with a huge wide variety of flowers and shrubs and trees. And there are some that are specialists but it appears from the research that about 90% of our moths and butterflies are specialists. So that means that they need very, very specific native plants. A good example um, is the monarch butterfly that we've all, it's sort of become iconic, and it needs to lay its eggs on milkweed. One of the problems has been, uh, with climate change, has been that Trees and shrubs and perennials are leafing out at different times of year than what they used to do. And so um, sometimes the butterflies or the birds or the bees will arrive at, quote, unquote, the wrong time. So then they can't get either the food they need or the host plant they need to lay the eggs on. Um, And the entire web gets disrupted. So one of the things that we're trying to do is at least provide the native plants. We can't do too much about bud break and the changes in bud break, but we can. And is is bud, the changes in bud break, meaning when the plants are starting to bloom, is? Bud break means when a tree or a shrub, or usually speaking of trees and shrubs, when they first, their little tiny leaves first burst out, and that can be dependent on um, a number of factors, some some trees and 
shrubs and other plants are, get signaled depending on when the weather warms up. So if the weather warms up very, very early compared to what it used to do, they will their bud break will be early and they could be damaged by later frost. Some uh, plants have a need for chilling days, a certain number of cold days, and they wait and wait and wait for the number of cold days to happen. And if we have especially warm winters, uh, they don't get the number of cold days. So things just get very confused. So some of the ways you want us, well, you, you if we're going to change the way we think about what a really good, vibrant, healthy garden is, a successful garden, uh, is there a kind of a, a visual that we can mm-hmm. take with us? Because you talked in the first segment about how you're, you kind of came up in the school of thought that the English manicured garden was right. the way to go. But right. that's, that's not what we're really looking to now. So what's interesting is um, I like this question because um, part of what I sort of grappled with in my own mind during my COVID year while I was researching this was um, am I suggesting that everybody has to have messy gardens? And so the answer is yes and no. So I think that you can do, uh, you can have a successful garden in terms of a very healthy ecosystem that benefits our native wildlife and helps the planet and helps to sequester CO2 and et cetera, um, and still have a very neat garden. You can still have a neat garden. It may not be quite as neat. If you're a really super, super neat freak, there may be some adjustment needed, but (laughs) (laughs) but you can still have a neat garden. You can still have an extremely beautiful garden. You can still design and be creative and artistic with your, so it doesn't preclude having really um, a wonderfully vibrant, beautiful garden, but there are just a few things that'll be a little different. Like maybe don't rake up the pile of dead leaves. That's that's going to be a, a different way of thinking for some folks. Why is yeah. it important to leave those leaves out there? Yes. Well, because there are a whole lot of wonderful little animals, ladybugs and lacewings and all sorts of other insects that are beneficial to to the planet, but to us as gardeners also because they eat the pests. Um, in any case, they overwinter in the leaf litter and also in the dried stalks of perennials and, and grasses and things. And so um, what we want to do is wait in the spring when we're going crazy. We want to clean up the garden and we just have an itch to get everything clean. We have to wait until the weather is 50 degrees for at least 70, I'm sorry, seven days um, before we do that because it gives them a chance to emerge. And so I did that this year. And what you can do if you get really can't stand it another minute, you can take the dried leaf stalks I'm talking about now and put them in a corner of your yard where the insects can emerge. So make a little corner for the insects yeah, to live corn, in insect a, corner over winter. <laughs> <laughs> but and, in general, yeah, in general, you you really want to leave the leaves, and it doesn't mean that you have to. You know, people are going to interpret this in their own ways. You you don't have to have a complete disaster of a yard. But I left a lot more leaves um, that last over the winter than I ever have before. And it saves you a lot of time and effort, actually, to do that. And it didn't really look that bad. 
You also talk about perhaps creating a little stick pile in a corner of the yard for for insects and animals? Or it, yeah, is this, yeah, again, some, just for insects? Well, if you leave um, various... some There's a expression as a snag, which is a dead tree, and that's something, if you happen to have a dead tree and you have a lot of room, um, that provides... Um, habitat and um, nurturing for different uh, animals and insects. The stick pile was probably re- might have been referring to uh, the dead leaf, I'm sorry, the dead stalks mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. from the winter, but I'm not sure. And that, you know, the first, I got to be honest, mm-hmm. the first thing that came to mind for me, because um, I am not a persnickety person when it comes to mess. I'm pretty good at that. And in the back of my yard under a tree, I have tossings from all kinds of plants that I've killed, right. piles of dirt, uh, dried up jalapenos that I grew over the summer. And I've thought, I'm going to have to wait until the winter to clean this up because I bet there are some timber rattlesnakes living in there now. Oh. And it, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm making that up. But I thought, what a great snake habitat. Is that something that has occurred to you? Um, I have never had snakes in my yard, so I really okay. don't know. I don't know a whole lot about snakes, so I, I'm happy to say that I don't have that particular um, fear of turning something over and finding a snake. But That's fair. Now, let's talk a little bit about how to figure out what's going to grow well where we live, because this is now a little bit more complicated than just figuring out hardiness zones. It is. So the USDA has a zone map, which I think a lot of people are probably familiar with. The most recent one was updated in 2012. And um, the, it, what happened in 2012 was the zones m- almost universally moved north uh, from the previous map. And it's, it's kind of overdue for them to have a new map out. With each degree of average climate change warming, the the zones move like 30 to 50 miles north, something like that. So basically, we are here in Wilmington are zone 8B, but I sometimes think of us as zone 9, even though that's just in my own mind. But um, what I suggest that people do is that they choose plants when you look, read about on the plant tag, or if you're reading about the plant, you will see two zone numbers. The first one, which I like to call the winter number, and the second one, which I call the summer number. And the, the summer number is not as well-researched. The USDA zone map was created to show us how cold the plant could stand it, like for the winter. Um, and those numbers, I think, are probably pretty solid. But the second number, the summer number, they don't really... It's not as reliable, in my opinion. So when I'm looking for plants, if the second number, the summer number, is 8, even though we're in zone 8, I am hesitant to plant that. Why? Because it's going to be too hot still Because it might plant? very well be too hot for that plant. You just don't know what the summer will be like. But if the summer is like it was this past couple of summers, um, you know, we could be... We could be having zone, experiencing some zone nine type heat. And so I think it's safest to choose plants where the second number is nine. That's just one of the things you can do. 
Now, you talk about planting your garden kind of in layers and starting with trees. Why do we start with trees? Trees are just such wonderful climate change mitigators. They um, store huge amounts of carbon. They provide habitat and food for all sorts of creatures. They um, absorb the rain, the runoff they absorb, you know, when if there are huge uh, weather events. We have hundreds and hundreds of wonderful native trees to choose from. And the reason I suggest starting from starting with trees is because usually they're the most expensive if you're trying to plot out a budget for your garden. And also in terms of time, you want to get those in first because they will take longer to mature than the shrubs, which would be the next. You, then you have the understory trees and shrubs and um, on down through ferns and perennials and grasses to ground covers. <clears throat> and one of the goals that we have in making a healthy garden ecosystem is to cover almost all of the ground with something that's growing. So that could be a ground cover. It could be um, things that we've thought in the past. We've thought of them as weeds, things like violets, clovers, dandelions. Um, We want to cover the yard with that. That's legitimate ground cover, not weeds. And, of course, this takes us us back to the um, we're going to hack away at the American idea of the suburban lawn Mm -hmm. as being the the definer of a successful yard. Why is a lawn perhaps not a great solution to climate change? Right. It it may not be a great solution. Um, There are about 40 million acres of lawn in the United States, according to the EPA. And for whatever reason, home gardeners tend to way over-fertilize their lawns compared to, say, um, professional, you know, farmers who apply exactly the right amounts of fertilizer. So they do, and I say, I'm talking about synthetic fertilizer, so they do less harm. But um, home gardeners just go overboard, and I don't know why. Um, And because turf grass lawns are monocultures, they are natu- they're not naturally healthy, so they need the synthetic fertilizer. Then they need, or, or um, homeowners believe that they need to also apply weed killer, and they also need to apply pesticides. And pretty soon, you've you've really got a toxic mess on your hands. And this is leaching into the groundwater, and ending up in our lakes and streams and rivers. Um, plus, the lawns, the turf grass lawns. Being monocultures, they don't benefit our pollinators and other insects, uh, excuse me, and other wildlife. So, And you uh, also talk about how the overuse of these synthetic fertilizers, it it spreads partly through leaching into the ground and then the groundwater, but it can also somehow spread in other ways. Um, I'm not sure about that, exactly okay. what I said. Okay. <laughs> but um, I can say one thing about synthetic fertilizers is the cost of manufacturing them in terms of um, the CO2 emissions, I should say, the, the environmental cost, is very, very high. So just to get, you know, one pound of fertilizer, you're really um, putting a great deal of CO2 into the atmosphere, plus the transportation adds 
to the CO2 into the atmosphere. Um, and eventually, over time, the synthetic fertilizers end up harming the soil and the soil organisms, which are so critical to the health of any plants that we're trying to grow. Now, one of the trees that you talk about as a native tree, the live oak, Mm-hmm. And that's something that uh, Doug Tallamy, who's who's also well-known in the field, uh, has touted as just a, a great source for uh, of habitat and protection and food for, for flora and fauna. Tell us about the live oak and how long, what's the best way to plant it and how long does it take to really become what we might call a mature tree? I don't know the answer exactly to how long it takes. I do know that I've um, seen Doug tell me speak about oaks, and he has it's a very interesting visual because he um, he he gets a little discouraged with people saying, "Oh, the oak takes too long to grow," but oaks actually don't take that long, and they they're they're known as a keystone species because they literally support hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different um, life forms in any one oak tree, hundreds of species, you know, thousands, maybe millions of actual life forms, but hundreds of species on one oak tree. But he has a visual where in his yard, I believe he lives maybe in Pennsylvania, an acorn, you know, just grew, just got planted itself. And so a little oak started. And then he went to the store and bought uh, an oak tree that was containerized, that was small, and he planted them near one another. And then he took pictures of his of a little girl who lived in his neighborhood, who was real tiny at the time that this all started, and showed how both trees um, grew. And when all was said and done, the one that had started from the acorn was much, much, had grown at a much more rapid rate and was much taller. And by the time she was heading off for college, um, there was a big, beautiful oak tree that she was standing under. So it was, a, it was, you know, that gives you a sense of the time. I couldn't tell you exactly, but he says people really should not um, be discouraged. He, he loves oak. He's written a book called Oaks. <laughs> <So> <laughs> oaks are just the bee's knees. They're the best. Now you identify the longleaf pine as one of the important trees in the local ecosystem and how uh, there are different efforts to try to bring that back. And you talk about how that particular tree needs fire mm-hmm. to, I'm not sure, to do what? To propagate? To, well, to, to what? To grow. The seeds will um, lie dormant until there is fire and then when there's fire. And so, of course, there are proscribed burns now in uh, pine savannas in places where people are trying to grow the longleaf pine. And um, there are people who do this for a living who will burn the area so that those seeds can germinate to, to grow. You know, So they can sit there for I don't even know how many years waiting for the fire. And so it is about propagation. It's about, of- it's about getting the, the seeds are there. It's just igniting them, <laughs> literally igniting them giving them the signal that it's time to grow into a, a full-grown tree. If I got 
a very small. <laughs> would it? Could I make it survive Ooh. in my yard? Oh, with I thought help? you were, were going to take a lighter to it. <laughs> no. oh. oh, yes, of course, of course, if you, yes. You're listening to Coastline. My guest today is Barbara J. Sullivan, author of Climate Change Gardening for the South. Lots more to explore after this short break. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Barbara J. Sullivan is well known around the southeastern United States as an expert gardener and the author of the book Garden Perennials for the Coastal South. But in recent years, she's observed ways in which climate change is altering what works. And she's learned more, she says, about what's sustainable. UNC Press has just released her newest book, Climate Change Gardening for the South, which explores the science behind climate change and gardening and offers new strategies for gardeners to transform an individual garden into part of the broader climate change solution. Now, Barbara Sullivan your own thinking process has evolved over time. I mean, you talk about an epiphany in the book that sort of changed the way you viewed gardening, but it also took a while for you to really understand what invasive species are and why they're so dangerous. I mean, you'd heard about them, you knew what they were, but it's been fairly recently that you've started to think, huh, that we need to do more native plants. Right. So invasive species, first of all, there are native species of plants and there are introduced species, sometimes called exotics. For example, camellias and azaleas are introduced species, but they are not invasive, thank God. And why are they not invasive? Uh, Because they just stay put. They don't... um, They're well-behaved. They're well-behaved. And um, I would like to explain what invasives are because I found um, in talking to people that there's a lot of misapprehension. And... um, so when we think of it, when a lot of people think of invasives, a lot of gardeners, they were like, oh, I hate such and such because it's invasive. It just takes over my area where I'm trying to grow my roses or I'm trying to grow some other flowers and this other plant invades. Well, that is, t- that's not exactly the definition. There's a technical def- definition of invasives, which are plants that escape from private gardens into wilderness areas, natural areas, areas where people have not um, built homes and shops and things. And these wilderness areas are becoming fewer and fewer and far between, and they're kind of isolated. And they, um, what happens is when a native plant takes root in one of these wilderness or natural areas, it outcompetes the natives that are there. Um, and sometimes it even sends 
chemicals into the soil to discourage the native plants, which is, they're just finding that out. But basically, these invasives don't have any natural enemies. So they just, um, they take up, uh, they end up basically pauperizing or impoverishing that native area, reducing the number of species of other plants that are there, and then that makes it much less beneficial to the wildlife that depend on all the plants that are living there. So, so they wreak havoc in these areas. And then crews have to go in who are responsible for maintaining these wilderness areas. They have to go in and try to remove the invasives, which is very hard. It's time-consuming. It's expensive. Sometimes they have to even use um, toxic weed killers, which they don't want to do, of course. But um, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about kudzu. Yes, exactly. Kudzu was introduced from Japan as a wonderful idea in the 50s, which turned out to be a really terrible idea. And we've all seen kudzu growing on the telephone poles and um, taking over entire you know, areas of trees, et cetera. So there are, as I have in front of me right now the North Carolina Invasive Plant Council list, and there are over... 70 plants on there, but I think people would be surprised to know that some of our favorites, like butterfly bush and nandina and um, quite a few others, taking a look here, tree of heaven and mimosa and Bradford pear and Chinese tallow tree. And Bradford pear, that's something that for a long time, I don't know if developers are still choosing that as their tree of choice. But they, those have often been used to replace trees that were taken out during the development process. Right. And you're saying oh. it's not just non-native. It's an invasive species. It's an invasive species. And actually, my husband and I drove through a part of Ohio recently and saw hundreds, if not thousands, of Bradford pears that had taken over a hillside, sort of an um, undeveloped area. And I was like, ah. Oh. Okay, now take us back again. This is a concept that we've already been through, but I think it helps sometimes to revisit it with specifics, like the Bradford pear. So why, if it proliferates through wilderness areas and chokes out other native plants, why does that matter? Why do we care if kudzu is growing up telephone poles? Okay, because for millions and millions of years, these ecosystems have co-evolved. So the birds, the, the beneficial insects, the pollinators, you know, the, your, your butterflies and your small mammals, et cetera, there's a, a web of life that has co-evolved over millions of years, and they are, they're codependent, basically. They're interdependent. So if the species of tree on which a particular um, other, an animal depends is wiped out, then that decimates the population of that animal, et cetera. It's, it's just a, um, a vicious So as cycle. the native plants die, then so do animal species. Yes. All yes. kinds of species are, yes. are dying. Yes. And um, there are reports, various different reports that I've um, that pile, piled up on my desk as I was researching this on species extinction all over the world. So species extinction for plants and animals is a very serious threat. And anything we can do to prevent that <clears throat> in my own garden, as an example, um, I had two beautiful, beautiful Nandina plants that I'd had forever that were in these big pots. And they had beautiful red berries 
which I loved at Christmas time. And this is one of the ways in which doing this research and wrestling with it and thinking about it, it's like, I really need to remove those. And then I thought, well, maybe I could give them to someone. <laughs> and then I thought, well, no, 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 no. That's the whole point is that nobody should have these. And I have a friend um, I saw recently um, when, we, when I was giving a talk, and she said, well, but the birds love my Nandina. I said, well, they do. And that's exactly it because then they poop the, the Nandina berry out miles and miles and miles away in an area that is a natural area that's then going to be under attack, you know, years from now from all the baby Nandina bushes that will that will crop up. I really appreciate you talking about your resistance to this new way of thinking and how you have accepted this in stages. I mean, you started first by not ripping out all your non-natives, but just by doing what? What was step one? Right. That's true. So... <laughs> This is a true confession here. Doug, tell me if you're listening, which you're not because you live in Delaware, I believe, or <laughs> Pennsylvania. Although we drop it as a podcast, so uh, it could well, very well. It could be. All right. So basically, here's here's a true confession, which is that I never wanted to read. I'd heard about Doug Tallamy and his books. And then he was coming to Wilmington, and somebody invited me. And I didn't want to go hear him. I didn't want to read his book because... I was in complete denial. This is many years ago. Um, I didn't want to hear the message because I felt like, Lord Almighty, I have been gardening here for 40 years. I've got all these things here. If he tells me that I have to rip out my garden or that I'm a very, very bad human being for having (laughs) (laughs) even thought to do what I've done, um, I just can't stand it. So anyway, I went and heard him, and he was incredibly charming and brilliant. And he said, look, don't worry. You don't have to rip out your whole garden. When something dies, replace it with a native, which is what I started doing. That was the message I took away. Um, and since then, since especially doing this research for this book, I've gotten more and more interested in natives. And so I'm putting more and more of them. I figured out ways to just incorporate more of them in little places here and there. Um, is it possible in the Cape Fear region to have native plants blooming in different stages all year round. Absolutely. That's one of the great things about living in Wilmington. You can have something 12 months of the year blooming, absolutely, which is such great benefit for um, our fellow fellow planet dwellers in so many different ways. Now, we need to talk about soil, but, but just first, I want to put a button on this native versus non-native. In your book, you talk about native R's. Oh, right. What are those? Yes. And what is, the, what, are the, what is the impact on the ecosystem? Okay. So the jury is out. But first of all, what they are, um, they are cultivars of native plants. So uh, scientists take uh, the species, the native plant that they find in the wild, and they uh, fiddle with it to make bigger flowers or a shorter stature or longer blooming period or whatever it is that they're trying to create. And you end up with what's called a nativar. And and I think it's good because that means more natives are getting introduced into the actual garden industry, which is a huge topic in itself as to when the garden industry is going to catch up with all this climate change thinking. But um, so the, the question is, will insects <clears throat> that would normally um, use these flowers, these plants for food or for uh, reproduction, will they still um, do that? And they've found for leaf-chewing insects, they will 
eat them unless the leaf color has changed, but people are still researching this. Um, I have a number of native bars, um, and and you may see them at the at the stores, at the nurseries, and not even realize that they're native bars, but that's what they are. <laughs> You're listening to Coastline. My guest today is Barbara J. Sullivan, author of Climate Change Gardening for the South, out now through UNC Press. Now, you have a different take on amending soil. We've always been told to add fertilizer, manure, compost, anything to put life into it. But in some cases, you disagree with that approach now. You don't bother soil as much. Right. So this was probably the most complicated for me to understand, and it was where I got the least amount of um, input from other people that I consulted. So uh, this is what I've deduced, that if you have native soil, if you're living somewhere, for example, there's a school here in Wilmington that has a, um, they've just acquired a new area that's, I don't think, ever been disturbed. So they have native soil. If you've got native soil that you're starting with, the best thing is to leave it alone. You don't need to amend it because it's taken hundreds of years for it to develop. And within with any table within any tablespoon of soil, you have billions of living organisms, and those organisms are absolutely critical for uh, the plant's health and survival and thriving. And I heard something actually um, on this radio station a week or so ago. About, other people may have heard about mycorrhizae. That was a wonderful story. <laughs> And basically, the person was saying that um, a tree would only, it was on Science Friday, possibly, that a tree would only be, grow as tall as a tulip if it weren't for the mycorrhizae in the ground, in the soil, that are uh, giving the plant the minerals it needs to grow, um, and in exchange, getting sugars from the plant. In any case, the, the soil biome is very, very important. And so if you have a native soil biome, the idea is not to churn it all up and add things to it. Now, if you are in a development where they've taken all your good soil, um, or if you're trying to grow vegetables in particular, um, you do want to amend the soil. So it sort of it de- the answer is it depends, which is the answer to lots of questions. But the larger message, I guess, is there's so much going on in the soil biome, if I'm using that term correctly, that we didn't really understand before. And you said, we think that non-native plants could be sending chemicals into the ground to poison. Well, that's some of the invasives. That's just some new research they're doing. It's called allopathic. um, And it just means that that it's not a lot of plants that do this, but they think some of the invasives, excuse me, actually change the soil chemistry so that to, to give themselves the advantage and to... Um, and it, it's just so interesting what we're learning about plants now, because you also say in the book that plants talk to each yes, other. Yes, you I said know. they... So what what do they say to each yes. other during a drought, for instance? Well, well trees in particular um, communicate through these underground networks, and they will not only save their own species, but they'll um, save other species of trees. And basically, they'll signal through these underground networks, which is why it's so important that the soil be healthy, um, that there's a, uh, maybe a pest attack or disease attack or, you know, the, w- to con- so that um, nearby trees can produce the chemicals in their leaves that will make them um, unpalatable to, let's say, the insect that's about to, the pest that's about to attack. And also when 
trees get ready to um, give up the ghost, they've lived their lives, they will dump carbon into the soil so that it can be used by other nearby trees. And they've, they've found, I could go on and on about this, but they've found salmon rings in um, trees where the bears uh, have left, the bears have eaten salmon and deposited the remains and it's been taken up into trees. So the soil is very exciting actually, but we don't ever think about it's it. It's a lot more alive. It's than very alive. You just think of it as dead, but it's totally alive. There are so many specifics that you talk about in the book, including you know, f whether there are fruit trees that are good for this area. That's always kind of an issue. Can fruit trees overwinter here? And people can buy the book <laughs> to, to find the answer to that. Right. But quickly, what is a sponge city? That was an interesting idea. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a, um, urban what's called an urban heat island effect, which means that whatever heat we're experiencing or drought we're experiencing, if you live in an urban area, it's intensified. Um, and so the sponge city movement is the idea of planting more trees in particular, planting everything, but especially trees, um, so that more carbon can be stored and uh, more moisture can be, you know, given back into the atmosphere. And also, uh more permeable hard surfaces. Yes, yes, more permeable hard surfaces so that the water, you won't have runoff and polluted runoff from these superstorms that we're having. And that is this edition of Coastline. The book is Climate Change Gardening for the South, published by UNC Press. Barbara Sullivan, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered the episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Continue the conversation with us on Facebook. Find us at WHQR's Coastline, hosted by, or just send an email to coastline at whqr.org. You can find the episode at whqr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.